Well, all right, as you can see, it's a very exciting time to be a part of our church, and uh, God's doing some really, really awesome stuff right now on top of uh, the fact that we're uh, closing in on having our own permanent facility, and that's an exciting step for us as a church. And so uh, thank you if you've been a part of the 1-8 Project and you're giving uh, to help us take that step. Uh, if you're here and you'd say, I'm a part of the church family and I've not got on board with uh, 1-8 yet and you would like to, we'd love, uh, we need all the help we can get. Uh, we'd love for you to be a part uh, of that. If you have your Bibles today, go ahead and open up to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 this morning. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 this morning. Uh, I hope you are buckled up and ready to go because Paul is uh, writing about some very uh, hot uh, button topics in 1 Corinthians and I think they'll be very uh, good for us uh, this morning. 1 Corinthians 6 is going to deal with um, uh, lawsuits in the church uh, and also is going to deal uh, with uh, sexual sin in the church. And so uh, if you have children in here, I'm going to give you a little uh, caveat on the front end. Uh, now, now would be a great time to check out our kids' ministry if you have babies through uh, fifth grade uh, because Paul's going to be addressing some things that you may or may not want to go ahead and talk to them about. And so uh, there's your warning, and we have a great kids' ministry, by the way, so uh, you should take advantage of that uh, anyway. So here we go. Uh, we're going to start in verse 1, and uh, we'll move uh, forward from there. Before we get started, I want to give you a heads up and kind of catch you up on where uh, we are in Corinthians, and so Paul uh, has began to, to write to the Corinthian believers about specific topics and specific sin that they are dealing with within their church. And here's what I want you to understand about this. He's not isolating uh, different sins to say these are worse than the other. Paul is writing from the standpoint of a church leader uh, and a representative of God, and what he's writing and what his heart is for the church in Corinth is that they would be the church that God has called them to be, that they would be a church that reflects Jesus in every area of their lives, and that they, uh, the world would look at the Corinthian church and get an accurate picture of Christ. And so when sin is in the church, people don't see Jesus accurately. And as the church, God uh, is serious about us pursuing purity and holiness because he's serious about people seeing himself uh, through the local church. And so with that in mind, uh, here we go. Let's jump into to verse one. It says, if any of you has a dispute with one another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world and are you not competent, to judge trivial cases. And so very early, what we figure out is there must there, there's a dispute within the church. And so uh, it's actually a lawsuit between two believers in the same church. Uh, and Paul says it's over a trivial case, which means we, under, we know it's not like murder or some sort of big crime. This is kind of a crime or a, a, a wrong uh, or somebody has cheated someone that should be able to be worked out in the context of brothers and sisters uh, in the church. But what's happened is instead of the brothers and sisters sitting down and dealing with the issue uh, among themselves, now they've went out and uh, gotten a lawyer and filed this, uh, this lawsuit uh, among the unbelievers outside of the church. And it's very much uh, ruining the reputation of Christ in the community. And Paul's not happy about it. 
So here's what he says, verse three. Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more uh, the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? He's talking about unbelievers. Verse five, I say this to shame you. So from this point for, or before, Paul has written not to shame them is what he said, but now he's saying, no shame on you. Like you guys are, are ruining the reputation of God in the world based on your actions. He is very upset about this. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have completely been defeated already. And so uh, here's the deal. When uh, there's conflict in the church and one believer takes another believer to court, Paul says, no, you've lost already because it's not about winning and losing in a court of law. It's about people seeing Jesus and you've already lost because they're, you're supposed to be loving each other as Christ loved the church and, and you're not loving at all, right? God wants his people to be known by love and grace and forgiveness. And when we uh, handle conflicts this way, it does not show and does not line up with the message that we believe uh, very well. And so he goes on uh, to say in verse seven, uh, he says, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you've already been completely defeated. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. And so Paul's point uh, is that they, uh, he, he, you can tell based off of his writing that the people that were in this argument didn't see it as a sin. They didn't see it as a big deal that they were going to court and they were fighting one another in front of unbelievers. And so he kind of does a little knee jerk and he says no. And he begins to compare, him, compare them to other types of sin. And he says, what you guys are doing are the same as this. That's not who you are. We're not people of sin anymore. We've been washed, we've been justified, we've been sanctified uh, by God. So know who you are and that's not who you are because we are a people that represent God to the community around us. And then he jumps into the next topic, sexual immorality. Verse 12, I have the right to do anything, you say. But then Paul responds, not everything is beneficial. Quotes, I have the right to do anything. So again, he's, he's pointing out how the Corinthians are thinking. They're saying, well, we got rights, Paul. We can do whatever we wanna do. And he says, yeah, you can, but not everything's beneficial. He says, I have, they say again, I have the right to do anything, but he says, but I will not be mastered by anything. Verse 13, you say food is for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. The body, this is Paul talking now, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. And so what they're beginning to say is their, their view of sex is sex is just an appetite. 
It's basically when I get hungry, I eat food. Uh, when I have a sexual urge, I go down to the local uh, temple, grab a prostitute. We have sex. It's not that big of a deal anyway, right, Paul? And Paul's like, absolutely not. That is not the way uh, God thinks about sex. And so he goes on in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Verse 16, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute uh, is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is with him in spirit. And so he's saying, no, as a part of God's church, as a believer, you are literally a part of the body of Christ. And so when you go and you hook up with this prostitute, you're taking Jesus with you to do this. And you're uniting Jesus as a part of his body to now sexual immorality. And that's, the, that's a big deal because God is not a God of sexual immorality. He actually has a design for sex. And that's what Paul uh, says is that two people become one. It's designed for the marriage covenant. And we'll talk about that uh, in a minute. Verse 18. So he says, flee sexual immorality. The only time the Bible uses the word flee is when it comes to sexual immorality. Sexual immorality includes everything from adultery to fornication to homosexuality to pornography and everything in between. And so what the Bible teaches is that we don't stand and try to fight against those things. Uh, we don't stand and flirt with those things, like just kind of maybe start the conversation, but then uh, don't take it too far. It says flee, which means Run as fast as you can run away from it because it has power to lure you in in an incredible way. He says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins, verse 18, a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own you were bought with a price, therefore honor God with your body. So again, we see Paul's point is that as a Christian, we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. That means God lives in us. We are God's representatives to the world. And so as people look at our lives today, uh, they don't have to go to a temple. They don't have to go to a building. The church is not a building. It's not a temple, not a service. It's a group of people. And that's us. And we are temples of God. And so we all uh, come together to make the church uh, the big temple together. And he wants the temple to accurately reflect himself uh, to the world. So it matters how we live our lives and it matters how we reflect God uh, to the world. And that kind of goes along with what we talked about last week, that purity in the church is a big deal because people seeing Jesus in mine and your life is a very, very big deal to God. So here's what I wanna do today. Three things that I think are in this passage uh, that I believe can serve us very, very well. The first is this. I want you to know that the gospel changes everything. The gospel changes everything. When we become a Christian, it changes everything about us. Our identity changes, our purpose changes, how we live our life changes because we begin to live for God and not for ourselves. We need to understand that. The second thing is I want us to look at disputes in the church. How should we as Christians handle conflict? 
How, is, how does that differ from the way the world handles uh, conflict? And then lastly, I want to look at uh, sex in the church, right? So how, uh, how does the world look at sex? How do we look at sex? How does that differentiate? What does God think? And how should uh, we as Christians represent him by the way we look at that topic? So here we go. Let's go. Buckle up. Get ready. Here we go. So number one, the gospel changes everything. Did you notice in verse 11 and verses 19 and 20? I want to read them to you so you can understand what I'm talking about. Uh, Paul says this, verse 11, and that is what some of you were. Remember, he goes through the list of all the different types of sinners, and then he gets to the end, and he says, and that's who you used to be. But you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And then bounce down to verse 19 and 20, and what does he say? He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And what Paul is doing is he's taking sinful actions, uh, problems in the way that the Corinthians are acting, and his initial thought is he goes all the way back to their identity and says, the reason you're acting like this is because you don't know who you are in Christ. And so the essential thing for you and I to know as a Christian is who we are in Christ, that when we become a Christian, we become new people with a new identity, with a new purpose, with a new way of life. And then that uh, really begins to reflect in every area of our life. And this is exactly how the gospel works in our life. And this is what the church uh, needs to begin to embrace, is that we live our life based out of the identity that God has given us. And so he's addressing action problems, but he's addressing them by going back to their identity uh, in Christ. Because he understands if they know who they are in Christ, and they understand what their purpose is as a Christian, then it will control how they act if Jesus is the most important thing uh, in their life. So let's talk about how this gospel works in our life, this good news of Christ and what he's done for us. The first letter A is this, the gospel changes our identity. Again, uh, this is who you used to be. Listen to him. He says, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Verse nine, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, greedy, drunkards, uh, slanderers, swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Is that, a, uh, is that an exhaustive list of the type of sins? No, but what he's showing them is that we have one thing in common as God's church, that all of us used to be sinners by identity, by nature. There's not one person in here that's perfect. We all have a past, and God called all of us as Christians out of that past now into a new identity. And this is exactly what the gospel does is he goes on to say, but you were sanctified and washed and justified. So God's work in us through the gospel is described in three terms. The first is you were washed. What does that mean? Think about baptism. It's baptism waters. It's kind of what that's symbolic of, that when you uh, are baptized under the water of baptism waters and raised up, it's symbolic of a few things. One is that your sins have been washed away by the blood of Christ, right? So when Jesus died on the cross, he died on the cross uh, so that you and I did not have to pay for our sin. And so he paid for our sins. And now through his blood, we've been washed 
uh, and now we are no longer guilty. There's no more shame for our sin. He has paid for them in full. The second is that you were sanctified. What does that word mean? Uh, past tense, sanctified, uh, means that you've been set apart. That when God saved you, he saved you on purpose for a purpose. That he set you apart for his purposes uh, in the earth. What that means is that there are no unqualified Christians. Right? So it's not, hey, Billy is qualified, uh, so he's up there teaching. Well, uh, there are some qualifications for teachers in First and Second Timothy, uh, but as a Christian, I'm qualified for the work of God regardless if I'm teaching and preaching or not. And that's what you need to understand is that God didn't save any person in this room that's a Christian for you to sit on the sideline. He saved you for a purpose. He wants to use you as one of his ambassadors in the world. And then thirdly, you were justified. What does that mean? Justified means that you have been declared righteous before God. That means that when God looks at every Christian in this room, he no, no longer sees you as a sinner that deserves to be punished, but he sees you uh, as, 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 a, as a believer, as a saint, as a righteous person uh, that's ready to be sent out to do the work of God. Now, the hard part about this is most people do not see themselves through this lens. I could probably not one person in this room if I walked up to them today and said, hey, how you doing? I'm washed, justified, sanctified. How about you? Like, we don't, we don't think about that. Like, we don't, we don't even use those terms. But in God's eyes, when he thinks of you as a Christian, that's what he thinks about. Man, they've been washed in the blood. Uh, they're sanctified. Uh, that means that they're ready to go, set apart for my use, and they're justified. I got nothing against them, nothing they can do to love me anymore or for me to love them anymore, nothing they can do to lose my love for them. I love them, and they are my son and my daughter. What a beautiful identity. This is the identity that God wants us to live out of. Secondly, the gospel changes our purpose. Let her be. The gospel changes our purpose. Not only does he give us a new identity, but he gives us a new purpose. This is why he says that we are now temples of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, now honor God with your bodies. We are God's temple. The Spirit of God lives in us. We are God's representatives. Our purpose has changed. If our purpose has not changed, then either we're not saved or we don't understand what salvation is. This is why the heart and soul class is so important at our church. When you become a Christian, we wanna make sure you know exactly uh, what God is doing in your life and the purpose that he ha now has for your life. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. This is an incredible uh, uh, definition of salvation. This is Paul later on talking to the Corinthian church, and he says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. That's how he thinks about it. When you become a Christian, the old is gone, the new has come, you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us, that's me and you, to himself through Christ, and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So he doesn't save anybody to be on the sideline. He saves us and rescues us, reconciles us to now go and be a part of the rescue team and reconciling others. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. Listen, we are therefore now Christ ambassadors. What does that mean? As though God were making his appeal through us. 
Think about what an ambassador does. An ambassador is a person that lives in a foreign country that represents the country that they're from. So that means you and I are citizens of heaven, the kingdom of God, but now we've been placed in the kingdom of this world and we've been sent here to represent the kingdom of God on this world, in this world, uh, right now. And so when people look at our lives, what they should see is they should see the kingdom of heaven being lived out on earth through us. And this is Paul's big deal. This is what he's getting at is, listen, as Christians, this is what our aim is. No, none of us are perfect, but we strive to show people heaven on earth as it is now. That's what we want to do. And so the gospel changes our purpose. God doesn't save anyone to sit on the sideline. God saves each of us on purpose for a purpose. Do not settle for less than that. Do not let anyone tell you that you don't have a purpose in the kingdom of God. I don't care what you came from, I don't care who you are, I don't care what you did, I don't care who you did it with. When you become a Christian, you're a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come, you are qualified, and God wants to use you for his purposes. And anybody that tells you a different is telling you a lie straight from hell. And you need to know that, and because of that, you need to step into this calling that God has placed on the life of us as a believer. So this is Paul's understanding. I want you to write this down, make sure we're on the same page. New identity plus new purpose equals a new way of life. Like that's his big point. That's what he's saying. That's how he addresses every issue in the Corinthian church. Listen, the reason you're acting like this is because you don't understand who you are. You don't understand the identity God's given you. You don't understand the purpose for why God called you and saved you. And now, and that's why you're not embracing this new way of life. And this is Paul's point as he leads into these two topics that he wants to address. The first, letter uh, number two, is this, disputes in the church. So he wants to talk to him about conflict in the church. What's going on? How do we handle issues with one another in the church? This is applicable because there's probably people in this room right now that have issues with another person in our church. In a small town, it's bound to happen, right? Somebody dated somebody's sister and did her wrong in seventh grade, so we got issues, right? <laughs> I'm kidding, but yeah, that is a lot of issues I deal with. All right, so here we go. I'm gonna read it to you again, and then I'm gonna explain it. So uh, verse one, if any of you has a dispute with one another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Why are you dealing with it out there? Deal with it in the church, verse two. Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are a judge to the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases. And so what he's saying is, as a Christian, we're qualified to make good judgments because we actually have the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Why would we take our issues before ungodly people, unchristian people who have no room to judge, right? He's saying, deal with it inside the church, people who are Christians. He says, do you not know that we will judge Angels. Some of y'all didn't know that as a Christian, we will actually get to judge angels uh, in the end times. Anybody know that? It's kind of cool, right? We, that, that's a whole sermon in itself. I can't focus on it now, but if read Revelation during the uh, thousand year reign, we will sit alongside of Christ and judge angels. How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I'm saying this to shame you, shame on you. 
Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? So instead, one brother takes another brother to court, and this is in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Paul says you've already lost. You've already lost. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he gives us our, our, our statement. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's who some of you were, but you were washed, sanctified, justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the spirit of our God. So here's the situation. Two believers in the church fighting against one another. One has filed a lawsuit in a secular court against that person. We're thinking Judge Judy right now, right? So so and so, their dog got out and it came in mine, ate my cat. Boom, we need to be able to deal with this. I'm talking trivial matters. I'm not talking like so and so murdered their brother, you know, like don't think like big crime. We're thinking trivial things that would be handled in a civil court like Judge Judy that should that are just embarrassing that the church is fighting about these things. Based on Paul's question in verse seven, we know that one person feels like they've been cheated and done wrong. And because of that, they've sought out a public lawyer and brought the drama before an unbelieving court, AKA Judge Judy. Based on verse eight, we know one person did actually cheat and do wrong to a brother or a sister in the church based on what Paul says. So how does Paul address this? In Paul's mind, he's got two concerns about this situation. Listen to the concerns and we can learn from it. The first is this. One, he says, you are not respecting the ability of the church and the authority given to you by Christ himself to settle a dispute between two Christians. He don't understand why they're taking this outside the church to unbelievers who know nothing about the spirit of God and nothing about the scriptures and nothing about uh, God's revelation. Because he says, as Christians, this is our judge. Like, this is what we go to to know what's right and to what's wrong. The second issue he has is by going to a secular court, you're airing the dirty laundry of the church before unbelievers, and you're providing a terrible testimony to the unbelieving world. And he don't understand that. We're supposed to be a people that represent God and God's love for us and God's love for one another uh, in, in, in front of the world, so much so that they want the God that we serve. And so here we are acting like crazies in Judge Judy's court about something stupid. And he's like, this does not represent the church well, and God's not happy, and neither am I. So what does Paul do? It's important. He confronts both parties directly. This is exactly how Paul deals with conflict in the church. This is how I try to deal with conflict in the church. I don't do he said, uh, he said, she said, and uh, let's know we're all coming together. Let's talk about it, and we're going to settle this thing out. We're not going to fight. I'm not putting your boxing gloves on, but we're going to talk about it. And what does God want you to do, and what does God want you to do? And that's the same thing I would want you guys to do in my life. We are grown-up people. We don't go to Facebook. We don't go to uh, TikTok. We don't, we don't do all that stuff. We are God's church, we love each other, and we solve issues like grown people. Amen? Amen. So what does Paul do? He confronts both parties directly. Listen, to the one who did wrong, to the one who cheated the guy, he confronts the sin, and he reminds him that isn't who he is anymore. 
Like this, and, and we know this guy's belittling what he has done. And Paul says, no, I'm about to group you with, with the worst of the worst sinners. And he just goes through this list of people uh, that, that are all types of sin. And he says, you think what you did wasn't a big deal, but God sees you as unrighteous the same way he sees all these other sins as unrighteous. And you will not inherit the kingdom of God if you continue uh, to act like this. And so Paul's saying unrepentant sin in the church is not okay. It's not okay by God. It's not okay by Paul. We can't love people and not talk to them about sin in their life. That make sense? We talked about this last week. So when somebody who loves me, who's a part of the church, and, and, and is walking in community with me, I'm not talking about walking up to some random guy sitting in the auditorium right now and say, hey man, let's talk about your sin real quick. And it's like, what's your name again? No, like that's not what I'm talking about. Somebody in your small group, if you're not in a connect group, you need to be in a connect group. Somebody who loves you, best friends, maybe the person that you came to church with, both of you are Christians, have a desire to pursue Jesus, sees something in your life and says, man, I don't think that's what God would want her to do. How much would you have to hate that person to not talk to them about what God would wanna to talk to them about? This is what God wants in the church is that we talk about sin. Actually, it concerns me more when you're unwilling to talk about sin because that shows me you're not pursuing Jesus because when we pursue Christ, he reveals sin in our lives and in our heart. And that's a good thing that he's doing that because he's ridding us of things that keep us from becoming more like him. So the one who did wrong, Paul confronts him. To the other person uh, that was sinned against, Paul confronts him for dragging the conflict among unbelievers. He says in verse seven, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have already been defeated. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? And this may be the harder one for us to accept right here. As far as Paul was concerned, when believers engage in legal disputes outside the church against one another in front of the world, they've already lost. And you gotta understand the culture uh, in Corinth. I mean, it's not like, you know, here we hate when we're called uh, to be a part of jury duty and it's like, God, I gotta go, that's it, there it does. Some of you are like, man, whatever I can do to get off work, I'm willing. But for most of us, we don't like to be a part of jury duty, right? But in Corinth, they loved it. Like it wasn't just like 10 or 12. This was like hundreds of people that would come and judge these cases and they would have crowds and it would be before the whole town and they would sit there. And so you can imagine uh, the talk of the town at this point where these two believers that were fighting over so-and-so's dog that went over here and Paul's like, this is ridiculous. What's happening and what's going on right now is ridiculous. So as far as Paul's concerned, they've already lost. But here's Paul's point. If there's conflict between two believers in the church, then we should seek to resolve the issue internally. And if it can't be resolved internally, Paul says, let it go. Even if you've been wronged, even if you've been cheated, and the other person is not willing to come to repentance, just let it go. Let it go because our testimony for Christ is the primary concern in our life as a Christian. Now listen, I'm not talking about outside the church, somebody kills your brother, you can't, justice can't be served. No, we have a God of justice. I'm talking about inside the church, trivial matter. If, if that per, you, the way you respond to another person's sin against you is not dependent on whether that person repents or not. That's hard to do because we want other people to act right and they sinned against me, they hurt me. But the Bible says, the reputation of the church and the reputation of God in the community 
is more important than you getting what you want and being right and the other person being wrong. Now, that's some hard truth right there. That means you can't go post on Facebook when somebody wrongs you and embarrass them and try to ruin their reputation. Or that means you can't badmouth them to the entire community when somebody does this or that or the other. No, out of love, we deal with it the way God wants us to deal with it. It's important that we understand that our witness for Jesus is more important than getting what we want or getting what is fair. Sometimes it's just better to let it go for the sake of God's kingdom because God in the end will get justice. He will get justice. Paul's not against the public court system. He's against two believers tarnishing the name of Jesus because they can't resolve their issues. The people in Corinth were taking their fights into the world and it was creating a bad witness for the church. The church is supposed to draw outsiders toward Jesus with their actions, not push them away. That's important. Life here on earth for a believer isn't about getting what is right and fair. It's about the mission. It's about glorifying God. It's about introducing people to Jesus Christ. And if this is true, then it's critical for us to think about how our behavior is perceived by the world and how we relate to one another and the words that we say when we're in front of non-believers about other brothers and sisters in Christ. It is important for us to understand that. So let's talk about this so we can kind of examine our lives a little bit. So just know, the first thing is, how does the world, how does the world handle conflict? Because Paul wants these to be different. He wants them to be a clear difference. Disputes in the world. The world is not worried about reflecting Jesus and how they handle conflict. No concern for it. The world mindset is do whatever it takes to show this person that I'm right and they're wrong. The world's mindset is vengeance. Do whatever it takes for them to get what they deserve. And if you know anything about the Bible, vengeance is not up to us. It's not our job to get vengeance. God will get his vengeance in the end, and we trust that he's gonna do that. Our job is to show people Jesus. Do whatever it takes to make them pay, is what the world would say. Do whatever it takes to destroy their reputation because that's what they deserve for what they've done to me. It's a mindset of selfish vengeance with win at all cost in your heart. But Paul's already said, you've already been defeated. The fact that you're out there talking about it with non-believers and ruining the name of Jesus and the witness of Christ is you've already been defeated. So on the other hand, what is dispute and conflict in the kingdom of God? What does it look like within the kingdom of God? Well, handling conflict among believers is solved in view of the gospel. It's in view of what Christ has done for us, and it's characterized by three words, humility, grace, and reconciliation. Humility, humility, people are sinful. You will be wronged at some point within the kingdom of God by another believer. People are sinful, but so are you, and so am I. And God forgave us when we were sinful against him, which is the second, grace. God is gracious. He extended grace to me and you when we didn't deserve it. And God's asking us to do the same thing for other people, is to extend grace to people even when we don't think that they deserve it. What if God extended you the same grace that you refused to, 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 to extend to the person that you feel like's wronged you? We would both bust the gates of hell wide open. 
But we serve a gracious God and we are ambassadors of this God in the way that we handle conflict. And then lastly, reconciliation. Glorifying God is always the goal in everything that we do. Repentance is the pathway to doing that and forgiveness is not easy, but I can tell you this, it is always worth it. It is always worth it. And Jesus, if you wanna read more about what this looks like, I don't have time to jump in it this morning, but Matthew chapter seven, verse 12, uh, Matthew five, verses 38 through 48, deals with the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and that's not Jesus's uh, saying, even though we say it all the time. Uh, and so read those things. So my question is this, how are you handling conflict and dispute in your life? How, does, it, does it represent Christ or does it represent the way of the world? Are you win at all costs, whatever, they, they get what they deserve. Are you in it to show Jesus? And listen, this is hard. I'm not preaching to you like it's just you. Like, this is me too. Like, I need people to remind me of this when I'm, when I'm in the midst of a conflict. What would Christ do in this situation? How can I glorify Christ even if I don't want to in this? The last thing, uh, topic that Paul hits on is sex in the church. Verse 12, he says, I have the right to do anything. That's how they're thinking. You say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything again, but I will not be mastered by anything. So what the Corinthians are thinking is we've been set free in Christ. We can do whatever we want to do. But the Bible doesn't say that. It does say that we've been set free in Christ, but we've been set free to serve Christ, not to walk in sin, right? That would be uh, licentiousness, and it's not in the Bible. And so, and they go on to talk about verse 13, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he raised us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take a member of Christ and unite him with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said that two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So here's uh, what the Corinthians are thinking. They're thinking just like the world. Listen, uh, Paul shows us uh, how they were thinking about sex. One, sex is just a physical appetite like eating. You get hungry, you eat. When you have sexual urges, you just go have sex with a prostitute. I'm free in Christ, whatever. That's how they were thinking. They were thinking that casual sex is not a big deal. It's, it's just a casual practice between two people. There's no strings attached. What I do with my body doesn't matter because the Bible says it's gonna be destroyed one day anyway, right? And Paul says, no. That's the exact wrong way to think about sex. In the Corinthian culture, a lot like our culture, sex for men was about building your reputation. The more women you could have sex with, the more of a stud that you were, right? Does that sound familiar? And then on the other hand, for women, it was the exact opposite. The more men you have sex with, the more like a prostitute you become and you kind of become the scum of the earth, so to speak. And this sounds very familiar because a lot of this is in our culture today. Our culture is hypersexualized. How do I know this? Turn on the TV. Most people in this room are influenced by the television. And let's be honest, most people in this room, the things that you watch on television have some form of this type of sexual mindset in them. Right? There's not a lot of good 
godly, wholesome TV where sex is kept inside the covenant of marriage. Bachelor, Bachelorette, uh, Yellowstone, all these things that we, uh, the main things that people are watching right now, all of them uh, paint sex in a way that God does not like. Fifty Shades of Grey, the most uh, sold book over the past five years, boom, is all about sex outside of the covenant of marriage. Uh, just watch commercials on TV, right? I mean, you can't even get a Hardee's commercial with a good hamburger without a girl half-dressed eating the Hardee's burger. You know what I mean? Go to the gym. You got guys wanting to take their shirts off and girls wearing uh, sports bras and God knows what. I'm just trying to work out. Just leave me alone. Uh, the next one, listen to music, right? We listen to the music we listen to. You can't even hardly listen to the radio, uh, secular music, without it talking about some form of sex. Pornography use in our culture has just been normalized. On average, a child's first exposure to pornography is between 9 and 10 years old, which is super sad. Over 90% of young men ages 16 to 24 say that they regularly look at pornography, and church attendance does not tend to impact that number at all. That number is the same. 90% of young men ages 16 to 24 are looking at porn, whether they go to church or not. And the largest group of people that are now participating in pornography are actually young women. It's crazy. And literally, there's more money spent on pornography every year than the NFL, MLB, and NBA combined. It amounts for $3,000 per second. It's billions of dollars. Literally, was talking to a guy the other day that's dating a girl, and I'm talking to him about marriage because they're already playing house, and, and he says, man, you know, if we don't have sex before we get married, then how am I gonna know if we're sexually com compatible? That's literally what he said to me. And I'm sitting here thinking like, thank you for being honest, one. Secondly, uh, you're talking to a preacher. You know I gotta say something back to that. Like, bro, like, you, you're a man. Like, she's a woman. You're sexually compatible. Like, this isn't like a buying a used car. You know what I mean? Like you're not buying like perks and bells and whistles. Like, you know, it's like, so it's, it, it, you know, we live in this type of world. I mean, sex outside of marriage is, is literally rampant. I mean, a motto for relationships in the world right now is literally hook up, shack up, break up, and then repeat the process. Like if you had to put a motto on relationships in the world, that's what it is. And then you think one day that you're going to meet the one and then you're going to get married and then all of a sudden you think all of this, this, this uh, mindset that you've wired into your head is just gonna magically disappear. And it's not. God did not design sex to be abused. And when it is abused, it causes all kind of collateral damage in your mind, physically, emotionally, all these things. All you have to do is think about sexual sin and sexual abuse and how it jacks up and messes up people when it happens and, and how long that takes to work through uh, with people. It's, it's crazy. But Paul says God has a different view of sex. Sex in the kingdom. Sex is much deeper than a physical appetite. It is spiritual. It is designed by God as a gift to be practiced inside the covenant of marriage alone. It's created by God with a purpose of procreation and intimacy and unity between a husband and a wife. Paul literally says to have sex with a person is to unite yourself to them. And it's important spiritually, emotionally, physically, and mentally to understand that. Once you've united yourself to a person, you don't ununite. 
Like it's there and it's always there. It's the best illustration I've ever heard about sex is sex is like fire. Fire can be used for good things and fire can be used for bad things. Inside the covenant of marriage, sex is good. It's an incredible picture of the gospel. It's literally a husband and a wife fully exposed, all the flaws, the good, the bad, and the ugly, fully known and fully accepted for a lifetime which is a picture of the gospel. God sees us as we are, and he saves us and says, I'll never give up on you. I'll never forsake you. I'm with you for the long haul. What a picture of the gospel. But on the other side, outside of marriage, sex is bad fire. It's incredibly damaging mentally, emotionally, physically, statistically. There's nothing harder for a person to overcome than sexual sin or sexual abuse. Emotionally, psychologically, and spiritual scars are, are the result of sex being, being uh, abused in our world. Sex is meant to be a way to say to another person that I belong to you completely and exclusively until death do us part. It's covenant love. That's why it's how a marriage is consummated. It, it is literally giving yourself to a person for the rest of your life. God has a high view of sex. And as a Christian, we should have a high view of sex too. And so now that we've gotten comfortable with each other, let's talk about sex in your life and sex in my life. Do you see it as a gift from God to be practiced inside the covenant of marriage or is it up to you to determine what you do with it? It's just a casual act whenever I want with whoever I want and there's no strings attached. I want you to listen to Paul's words to a person who thinks that way. Verse 18, he says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sin a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Again, Paul says, flee. He doesn't say fight sexual immorality. Don't try to stand strong in the midst of it. Uh, don't I mean, don't try to put on the armor of God when sexual immorality is around. He says, literally, run, forest, run. As fast as you can run, get out of the situation. Don't think about it. If it's on TV, turn it. Whatever it is, get it away because it is powerful. And Paul says, flee, don't flirt with sexual immorality. And it's hard to live in our culture and flee sexual immorality because it's everywhere around you. But as a Christian, that is what you and I are called to do. So here's my question. Are you fleeing sexual immorality? I heard a story from a, from a pastor uh, this week as I was listening to, to things to prepare for today. And he, he was talking about back in the, in, the, in the Roman culture when a soldier would be baptized, uh, they would be baptized uh, just like we're baptized, but they would hold one hand out of the baptism. And in that hand, they would hold a, their sword as a Roman soldier. And essentially, they would hold it out of the water saying, I'm a Christian, but what I do with this sword doesn't matter. It doesn't reflect who I am as a Christian. It hasn't been baptized. And he, he was given the illustration, and here's what he said. He said, today, it's the same way. Like, we're baptized, but it's not a sword that we're holding out of the water. It's our money, and it's our sex life. And for most people in this room, when you became a Christian, you gave every part of you to God, but most likely one of the areas that you held back 
was your sexuality. Because not because you, and it may be because you don't understand what God thinks about it, but because it is hard. Like you are literally going the opposite direction of the world. But here's what I want you to know today. God's not mad at you. Like God loves you and he sent you here today to hear this message and to say, take heed, heed the warning, flee sexual immorality. Don't play with it. Don't ask questions. How far is too far? You run from it as far as you can. And if you do that, I promise you in the end, it's gonna serve you better than anything else. Right where you are, I want you to bow your head. I don't know where you came into the room today. I don't know if you're in the midst of a conflict right now with another believer. I don't know if you're in the midst of of, of sexual sin or maybe you've been sinned against sexually and you're trying to overcome it. Here's what I know. Jesus is here and he wants to help wherever you are. I pray today as we sing this last song about King Jesus and what he's done and who he is, that you would respond to him in grace. So Father, we love you and God, we're thankful to be here today. Lord, I pray for each person in this room, God, that we would be a church that reflects you in every area of our life. God, in the way we handle conflict, God, in the way that we handle sex in our life, Lord, I pray that you would be glorified and that people around us would see it and God, they would want more of you. So Father, would you give us the ability to do what we can't do for ourselves? God, strengthen us through the power of your spirit and lead us and guide us every day. We love you in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Would you stand up and sing?